0: This is History 2311, week 10A, Uprisings, 1968. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief really. Business man there Drink my wine Plum on. There are any number of songs that I could have picked for this lecture, for this moment in time, 1968. I think there might be a law that says that history teachers have to play "Fortunate Son" by Creedence Clearwater Revival when talking about the Vietnam War, but this one, uh, Jimi Hendrix's cover of Bob Dylan's "All Along the Watchtower," is. I think it's one of the few songs from this era that still sounds as edgy and dangerous or almost as edgy and dangerous now as it must have in 1968. There's a way in which time and constant airplay on classic rock radio uh, has worn down the edges of this music until it all sounds like stuff you could hear in an elevator or in the supermarket. But there was a time when this music sounded to Americans like revolution. In my lecture today, I am again going to zoom in on a particular year, uh, as we did with 1876 and 1898 and 1945. And if you're going to pick one year to zoom in on, 1968 is a really good one. I mean, again, you could teach an entire course on this year. As you see on this slide, the organization of this lecture is well, it's, it's not very organized really. I don't have a good structure here with a thesis statement or a topic and a set of logical subtopics instead I've just given you a list of cities. Uh, this lecture is kind of a kaleidoscope of all these different things that were happening at once in this year. So the lecture might feel a little bit Unstructured, and I apologize for that, but I also invite you to experience that confusion and sit with it and to think about what it must have felt like to live through this year, to live through these events, these uprisings in rapid succession, bang, bang, bang. The Russian revolutionary Vladimir Lenin has been quoted as saying, there are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. Uh, Like many good quotes, it's quite possible that he didn't actually say it, or at least not so pithily, but I like this quotation because it captures something about the perceived pace of historical events. There are indeed periods where it seems like nothing happens, although that's never true, and then there are periods where it seems like everything happens. But even as I say that, it occurs to me that maybe you do have an idea what it is like to live through one of those years because you just have. I gave this lecture uh, in Middlesex Hall uh, one year ago on Thursday, March 12, 2020. And it was the last class I taught before the pandemic shutdown. In fact, I was chatting with a student before class that morning And he asked if I thought the university was going to shut down because of COVID. And I like snorted and said, no. (laughs) 24 hours later, it was closed. I tell this anecdote because of course you all lived through 2020. And the year, the last year that we've just lived through that we're still living through, I guess with the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement and uprising and the whole Donald Trump circus and the contested election it was not so very much unlike 1968. The specific issues are different, most of them, but the subjective sense that history is kind of sped up and that everything is happening on top of everything else was probably very similar. 1968 was a year in which insurgencies against the dominant political and economic order broke out in almost every industrial nation. And these insurgencies were nearly almost led by young people, people under the age of about 25 or 30. Now many of those revolutions were defeated or took decades to triumph, but in every case what occurred in 1968 transformed what was to come. And one of the outcomes was that the liberal consensus I talked about last week The sense that despite differences, Americans basically agreed, or white Americans at least, basically agreed on a certain set of core political concepts. That came apart in 1968 and has never really been put back together. And although our story is largely American, it begins in Saigon. I should warn you that two slides in this lecture show dead bodies, uh, U.S. soldiers and also Vietnamese civilians. Early in the morning of January 31st, 1968, the revolution came to Saigon. Saigon was the capital city of South Vietnam and the base of all American operations in Vietnam. Supposedly, it was the most secure spot in the country for American forces. Now Tet is a Vietnamese New Year and there was supposed to be a ceasefire to mark the holiday, but just before 3am something like 20 Viet Cong commandos blew a hole in the wall of the US Embassy and charged in guns blazing and seized the place. The Viet Cong, uh, also known as the VC, formerly known as the National Liberation Front of Southern Vietnam, were the communist or nationalist insurgents, the anti-U.S. insurgents in South Vietnam, and distinct from the Army of North Vietnam, although the North Vietnamese Army did back and supply the Viet Cong. By dawn, an estimated 80,000 Viet Cong guerrillas had launched coordinated assaults on just about every major town and city in South Vietnam. Now many of these attacks proved to be suicide missions. The Americans had more firepower, they took back the embassy by noon, and, and the Viet Cong failed to hold any of the cities they took over for more than a few weeks. Really, they suffered huge losses as a result of the Tet Offensive. But the Tet Offensive succeeded in a way that its planners may not have anticipated because it shattered the illusion which the US military and government had been perpetrating for years that the war was being won, that the Americans were winning the war. The Tet Offensive showed that the cities of South Vietnam were not safe. The U.S. Embassy was not safe. Nowhere in Vietnam was safe for Americans. Uh, The Tet Offensive showed that the VC were not giving up, which is what the American military kept saying, but that they were just getting started. President Johnson and the Pentagon had been telling the American public that the war was almost over. Uh, General Westmoreland famously said he could see the light at the end of the tunnel. But after the Tet Offensive, no one was foolish enough to make such statements. In February of 1968, so right after Tet, Walter Cronkite, who was the most respected TV newsman in America, said on the evening news that it was certain that the bloody experience of Vietnam could only end in a stalemate. And President Johnson is said to have said, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. For troops in Vietnam, Tet kicked off the worst, most agonizing year of fighting in the war. It seemed that the VC could apparently strike anywhere. This is a war with no real front lines, with, with no territory to win or hold. And so the US Army's strategy, its only strategy really was to fight a war of attrition. Success became measured largely by body count, American soldiers were told basically to march around in the jungle until the enemy attacked them, then engage them and count up how many they kill. This was a brutal and demoralizing kind of fighting. And and this emphasis on body count encouraged American troops to care less and less about the distinctions between civilians and enemy soldiers, uh, between friends and enemies. After American planes drove enemy forces out of the city of Ben Tre by basically bombing it to rubble, the major in charge of the operation infamously said, it became necessary to destroy the town in order to save it, which seemed a perfect encapsulation of the Pyrrhic war the United States was fighting in Vietnam. In March of 1968, members of one infantry company snapped. Uh, soldiers entered the village of Milai Lai looking for Viet Cong guerrillas. And when the villagers were uncooperative, the American GIs killed something like 300 villagers with grenades, bayonets, bullets, and flamethrowers. Army officials knew about the massacre right away, but covered the story up for months. Lyndon Johnson, who was once considered the master politician of his era, was, by 1968, in danger of losing the nomination of his own party. He could no longer give speeches anywhere but army bases, basically, or he would be greeted by crowds of protesters shouting things like, hey LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Eugene McCarthy, who was a bookish and fairly obscure anti-war Senator from Minnesota uh, despite being a Democrat decided to oppose Johnson for the Democratic nomination in 1968 and on March 12th McCarthy came within a few thousand votes of winning the New Hampshire primary. He didn't win but the fact that this obscure Senator had done that well against the sitting President was a real sign of Johnson's weakness. It also convinced New York Senator Robert Kennedy, former President Kennedy's brother, to throw his own hat into the ring. The bottom of this slide shows a young man getting quote, clean for Gene" in 1968. This was young supporters, young anti-war supporters of Gene McCarthy in 1968, So many of these young men had the long hair and the beards that were the fashion at the time, but they showed their support for McCarthy by getting haircuts, by shaving their beards, uh, so that they could campaign more effectively, you know, knocking on doors, going to rallies, and they wouldn't look like long-haired hippies. Bobby Kennedy, the former president's brother, was soon a very real challenger to Johnson for the nomination. Kennedy fashioned himself as a crusader for black civil rights, and a little bit implausibly as an anti-war candidate. Certainly Kennedy had supported the Vietnam War when John Kennedy was in office, but now he came out against the war. In March of 1968, Lyndon Johnson called a summit of quote, wise men, basically key foreign policy advisors from like the last 30 years, many of them, the architects of American Cold War policy and containment. And he asked these men, what he should do about Vietnam. And the consensus of the this group was that it was time for America to get out, that continuing the war would just lead to unrest in America, to uh, more protests, to financial crisis, that the war must come to an end. On March 31st, 1968, Johnson announced a temporary halt to uh, the US bombing of North Vietnam. He also turned down the Pentagon's request for 200,000 more troops. He signaled his willingness to begin peace talks with the enemy, And then at the end of this speech, he stunned the nation by saying that he would not seek the nomination of the party and he would not run again for president in 1968. Meanwhile, in Memphis, Tennessee, 1968 was also not going well for Martin Luther King Jr. After the great victories of 1964 and 1965, he and other civil rights activists had been frustrated by their inability to make much further progress. And I talked about this the other day. King and the movement were now pressing more difficult issues in a way. Uh, voting rights and desegregated schools were one thing, now they were trying to reform the economic system itself. Also, the civil rights movement had moved out of the South. They were protesting racial and economic injustice all over the country, including the cities of the North. And even though King had become more radical, he still wasn't radical enough for some of the younger activists. Uh, black power leaders like Stokely Carmichael or the Black Panther Party were increasingly impatient with the strategy of nonviolent civil disobedience and with King himself. And as I said the other day, the partnership between white liberals and black activists had broken down. Lyndon Johnson was no longer willing to press for civil rights reform and he didn't have the political capital to do so anyway. In April, 1967, King made his break with Johnson permanent when he spoke out against the war in Vietnam, saying that the war was unjust and also that it prevented progress towards equality in America. And as I said the other day, Johnson took this as a personal betrayal, never spoke to King again. On April 4th, 1968, a week after Johnson announced he would not run again for president, Martin Luther King was in Memphis, helping to organize a strike by city sanitation workers, where he was shot and killed by a white ex-convict named James Earl Ray. King's murder seemed to destroy or repudiate his fragile, radical dream of a nonviolent, equal, integrated society. Riots broke out that night in over 120 American cities. Stokely Carmichael said, now that they've murdered Dr. King, it's time to end this nonviolence bullshit. Some of the worst rioting was right in Washington, D.C., close enough to the White House that Johnson could see the flames outside his window. Soldiers set up machine guns on the steps of the Capitol to protect it. There was so much upheaval in 1968 that I can't spend a lot of time on everything, but I want to make the point that this was global eight days after King's death at Columbia University in New York, a group of student activists seized Hamilton Hall, one of the administrative buildings at Columbia. There were tons of university sit-ins and protests like this during the 1960s. But this one is kind of famous because it was in New York at an Ivy League school, also because it lasted for almost a month and it ended violently when the NYPD stormed the buildings with tear gas, injuring hundreds of students but it also represents the breakdown of the student movement along racial lines because the protest was organized by two groups. Uh, The mostly white Students for a Democratic Society were protesting Columbia's support of the war in Vietnam. And the mostly black Student Afro Society was protesting the university's plans to expand into Harlem, uh, pushing residents there out of low income housing. But after the first day of the sit-in or occupation, the black students asked the white students to leave and find their own building to occupy. So the white students took over the library instead, which meant that the sit-in or the occupation also became a kind of tense racial standoff between black and white protesters. And that's just one little story in microcosm of things that were happening all over the place. As I say, the uprisings in 1968 were global. In West Berlin, thousands of young people rose up to protest and attack the state for employing former Nazis. You see this picture of a protest in April 1968. Notice that the German students are carrying, among other things, pictures of Martin Luther King. And I think in the background, one of the banners says something about the war in Vietnam. So all of these issues were interconnected in the protests of the time. In France, what began as a demand for co-ed dormitories at the French universities mushroomed into a nationwide student strike, which then grew into a general strike of something like 10 million workers that shut down the whole country. In Brazil, there were uprisings against the military dictatorship. In Ireland, a new round of violence broke out between Protestants and Catholics. This is often considered the beginning of the troubles, which were several decades of on again, off again, violence in Northern Ireland that lasted until the Good Friday agreements of 1998. 1968 also saw major protests in Rome, in London, England, in Jamaica, in Madrid, The Olympics were held in Mexico in 1968. Americans remember the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City for the Black Power salute of sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos, but there were also escalating protests going on during the Olympics against the Mexican government. And the army ended up seizing control of the UNAM, Mexico's largest university, after the games, a student demonstration ended with the police and soldiers firing into the crowds, killing hundreds. The uprisings even spread behind the Iron Curtain. In Prague, Czechoslovakia, a reformist government was elected in January 1968 and began trying to liberalize communist Czechoslovakia. They loosened restrictions on the media, on speech, on travel, until August 1968, when the Soviet Union invaded and crushed the reforms. To find another year with as many revolutions or revolutionary movements as 1968, you would probably have to go back to, I don't know, 1848, which is kind of the famous year of revolutions in the 19th century. It's uh, liberal revolutions against monarchy in almost every European country. A lot less grave, but Hugely significant in the long run were the demonstrations at the 1968 Miss America pageant in Atlantic City. Several hundred women came to the pageant to protest the sexism, which is a word that had only been coined in that decade, sexism. The sexism of the pageant and and sexism and discrimination against women generally. And these protests are often considered the launching of what they call the women's liberation movement. These demonstrations were not particularly angry and they were certainly not violent. They were really more theatrical and funny. Uh, The women there crowned a live sheep Miss America and they threw a variety of beauty products like bras and wigs and girdles into a huge freedom trash can. It was after this protest that the media started referring to feminists as bra burners, even though I I don't think actually anything was burned. I I suspect that uh, bras from the 1960s don't burn very well. Now, this was hardly the start of the women's movement. Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, published back in 1963, had awakened an older generation of women to feminism. And groups like the National Organization for Women had been fighting a civil rights style battle for about a decade. And of course, there were generations of feminists and suffragists and women activists long before that. But the Miss America demonstrations in 1968 were kind of the coming out for a new generation of younger feminists. Many of them had experience in the civil rights movement and also the anti-war movement of the 1960s and by 1968 they had had enough of the sexism and discrimination not just of American society in general, but the sexism and discrimination within these movements, the sexism of their own male comrades in the New Left and in the Civil Rights Movement. One of the very last documents in the uh, Freedom Summer packet, source packet for your assignment speaks to this. A young woman named Carol hanish wrote an important essay in 1968. She said, When you discover that what you think are personal private issues are actually shared by many people. So maybe you feel pressured to have sex or judged too harshly for having sex, or you feel judged on your appearance, or you think it's unfair that you have to do most of the housework. You think these are personal problems, individual problems. But if you discover that lots of women have these personal problems, then they aren't in fact just personal they are collective issues, they are political issues, and the solutions have to be collective and political. This essay was originally called Some Thoughts in Response to Dottie Zellner's Thoughts on a Women's Liberation Movement, but when it was republished in 1970, the editors gave it a much catchier title, The Personal is Political. And this is not just a slogan, this became really one of the crucial insights of second wave feminism, and I would argue of modern political life. That personal issues are political issues that require collective political solutions. Far more violent demonstrations happened that summer in Chicago at the Democratic National Convention for that election year. When Johnson announced that he would not run for president, the contest for the Democratic nomination opened up. The most likely nominee was Johnson's vice president, Hubert Humphrey. But Humphrey supported the war in Vietnam and was widely seen as kind of Johnson's lackey. So then he was challenged, as I said, by Eugene McCarthy and later by Robert Kennedy, who entered the race in mid-March. And Kennedy started winning primaries and seemed a real challenge to Humphrey for the nomination. On June 5th, Kennedy had just won the California primary and he was on his way to give his victory speech when he was shot and killed by a Palestinian nationalist named Sirhan Sirhan. This, of course, shocked the nation. It also gutted the anti-war movement, which had kind of seized on Kennedy as their last best hope of ending the war in Vietnam. As it became clear that Humphrey was going to win the nomination, student radicals and other groups all made their way to Chicago, to the Democratic National Convention, to protest his nomination. One of the most visible radical groups were the Yippies, led by Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin. And like the women at Atlantic City, the Yippies were as much theatrical as political. They talked about letting greased pigs loose in the street or uh, getting thousands of people to march naked uh, or lacing the city's water supply with LSD to produce a revolution of sex and love and drugs. But the mayor of Chicago, Richard Daly, was not amused by any of this. And he mobilized all 12,000 city police along with something like 6,000 National Guardsmen and, and, and hundreds of army troops and authorized them to use whatever force was necessary to keep order. Things turned ugly. And the nation ended up watching on live television as Daly's police drove protesters back with clubs and tear gas and mace. The protesters knew this and they chanted for the TV cameras, the whole world is watching, as the police tore into them. The world was watching, but in truth, the majority of Americans probably supported the police more than the protesters. Polls showed that Americans approved of Daley's actions by a margin of two to one. That's not to say the war in Vietnam was popular. A majority of Americans by this point were strongly against the war, but the anti-war movement was also unpopular. Anyway, the convention was a terrible fiasco for the Democrats. The Republicans ran ads for the rest of the summer and fall showing pictures of the violence in Chicago, basically asking how can a party that can't even keep order at its own convention keep order in our country and the world? Which brings us back to Washington. The Republicans nominated Richard Nixon in 1968 and Nixon must have known after Chicago that he had the White House in the bag. A little bit like uh, Franklin Roosevelt after Hoover routed the bonus marchers in 1932. But there was still one more wild card in this election, and that was the candidacy of George Wallace. Wallace was the governor of Alabama. He was a former Democrat who broke with his party over civil rights because Wallace was a staunch defender of segregation. He demanded the repeal of the Civil Rights Act and the restoration of Jim Crow. He was also kind of an anti-war candidate. He, he said Vietnam was, uh, I think the word he used was rat hole. He said it wasn't worth fighting over and he promised to bring all the troops home. Sometimes people compare Donald Trump to Barry Goldwater who ran for president in 1964, but I always thought the more obvious comparison was between Trump and Wallace. Like Trump, Wallace isn't easily placed on a left-right political spectrum, but Wallace ran an kind of angry white man campaign that combined a sort of populist, somewhat left wing economics with angry attacks on civil rights, attacks on immigration, and so on. And that is, of course, very familiar to us today. Wallace was also theatrical in a way that Trump would understand. Wallace would actually arrange for protesters and hecklers, left wing protesters and hecklers, to attend his speeches so that he could shout back at them, which would always win the crowd over. And Wallace probably cut into both. Humphrey and Nixon's support. It's it's actually hard to say who he benefited more, but he definitely continued the process we saw in 1964, which was the splitting of white Southerners away from the Democratic Party. But the violence and the unrest and the upheaval of 1968, uh, mostly in electoral terms, went to the benefit of Richard Nixon. Nixon campaigned that year on a theme of law and order, which had a lot of appeal after all the unrest of that year. And Nixon was always a very shrewd politician. He played the political game in a cutthroat, cunning way. And he didn't really have deep political convictions. At least that's my read. Back in the days of the Red Scare, he was a commie hunter rooting out spies. But when Eisenhower tapped him to be vice president, he remade himself as the perfect sort of moderate Eisenhower man. Then in 1964, in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, he sat that election out because no way was he going to run against the memory of an assassinated president. Then in 1968, when Johnson got out and there was an opening, Nixon jumped right in. And in a year of unrest and upheaval, he made himself a law and order candidate. I'm not going to talk much about Watergate. There are other things I want to talk about in my second lecture this week on the 1970s. But of course, that lack of conviction is what brought Nixon down in the end. The so-called law and order president authorized illegal break-ins and buggings of his political opponents to sabotage opponents in an election he was going to win anyway. This is the 1972 election. Uh, And then he broke the law repeatedly to cover that up. We also know now that in the run-up to the 1968 election, the Nixon campaign uh, secretly worked to sabotage Johnson's peace talks with North and South Vietnam in order to make sure that Johnson didn't end the war before November. Nixon's aides told South Vietnam to hold firm and make no deals with the North, and he promised to renew American commitment to defending the South, as long as they didn't end the war before the U.S. election. Meanwhile, Nixon told Americans that he had a plan to bring, quote, peace with honor to Vietnam, but he didn't specify what it was. Once he was elected, his plan turned out to be a massive increase in bombing while gradually reducing the number of ground troops in the country. And in the end, even though Johnson basically resigned in hopes of ending the war, it took five more years to bring U.S. troops home from Vietnam. But Nixon won the election. And so 1968 ended with his rise to power, pledging to bring the country back together to return things to normal. And if you end the story there, it is tempting to conclude, as many people felt, that all the protests, all the uprisings, all the upheavals of 1968 had not accomplished very much. The intensity of protest did fade, especially after Nixon ended the military draft, which did a lot to defuse the anti-war movement, but things never really go back to how they were before. The women's rights movement certainly would only gain steam and its real heyday would be the 1970s. African-Americans would keep fighting for economic rights, no longer satisfied with the gains of the past. This picture here is of what was called the hard hat riot in New York City in 1970, uh, which was an episode where New York City construction workers were protesting against the anti-war mayor of New York City, John Lindsay, But they ended up running into and attacking an anti-war demonstration. So this kind of, I don't know, represents kind of angry protest on the right as well as the left and the deepening polarization of American politics. Because I think the outcome of 1968 was that the political consensus we talked about last week, that vital center of Cold War liberalism, really had cracked apart. One group of Americans had moved left in their politics. And so there was a new left that no longer believed in the basic goodness of America, that was no longer satisfied with the slow, careful pace of liberal reform. But on the other side, there was also a new right that no longer had faith in the American government, that had no faith in the ability of government to solve problems, to make the world a better place. So you had an increasingly angry, polarized politics, a deep political but also cultural divide between left and right, and a deep deepening generation gap, all of which to say that the world after 1968 looked a lot more like our world than it had in 1967. Thanks very much for watching.